Uh, more and more these days, movies are being made with a sequel in mind. You get to the end of the movie and it leaves you hanging, leaves you wanting to see part two. And just a, a little hint, in case you haven't picked it up, often after the, the, uh, the credits run, they give you a little taste of what might be coming up in the sequel. Now, the first, first one I remember was uh, Lord of the Rings. Uh, part one finished with Frodo and Sam just beginning their journey to Mordor. And we had two more movies to, to go before they actually made it to the end. Uh, I've just finished watching the first series uh, of something called The Wheel of Time, another sort of fantasy thing. And uh, that first series only covers book one of 14 books. So <laughs> I think that's a long way from being uh, the ending of actually being an ending. Now that's okay if you get to the end of a series and you know that's going to happen. But it can be pretty frustrating if it surprises you, can't it? It's the sort of ending that's really a beginning. It's the sort of ending that's bound to cause a response when you see it. On the one hand, uh, you either can't wait to see what comes next and you're excited, or else you're surprised and frustrated and annoyed that there's no resolution, there's no ending. Now, this sort of range of responses, it's what people have when we read the end of Mark's Gospel here. Because it finishes so suddenly, doesn't it? Luke's Gospel, it finishes with lots of appearances of Jesus, with his ascension, and then with his ascension. Uh, Luke's a historian, he, he, he gets all his, his uh, eyewitnesses together. Uh, John finishes with uh, Jesus appearing to doubting Thomas, then catching and cooking breakfast for his disciples and then reinstating Peter. Uh, then there's Matthew's Gospel. Matthew finishes with the Great Commission. Jesus commands his disciples to go and tell everyone the good news and Jesus promises to be with them to the very end of the age. And then compare that with Mark. If you like, Mark is not the Great Commission but the Great Omission. It's like the ending's actually missing. The last thing we read is that the women said nothing to anyone because they were so afraid. And lots of people down through history think that can't be the right ending because it doesn't fit the way that we would finish a story. And so lots of people think that somewhere down through history we must have lost the last page or something similar. Now that's certainly possible, but there's no, actually, there's no evidence of a last page of Mark's Gospel ever having anything, um, any other ending to, to what's actually here. But that doesn't stop someone, that didn't stop someone writing another ending or actually including another ending. And if you're following along in your Bibles, and I hope you are, uh, you'll see that there is a lot, there is an ending there. Uh, and uh, it's uh, verses 9 to 20, and it's almost certainly not written by Mark. It's almost universally agreed. Mark didn't write it. Uh, and your Bible probably has an introduction or a little footnote after that says something like, the earliest manuscripts do not have Mark 16, 9 to 20. As far as we can work out by comparing all the manuscripts, it appeared somewhere around 3 to 400 AD. So, you know, 150, 350 years after Mark was actually written. But the oldest, the most reliable manuscripts, dated from around 90 to 100 AD, uh, they finish at verse 8. 
Now I think that's probably where Mark wanted to finish his work. Uh, so what we're going to do today is uh, trust that God's given us exactly what he wants us to, uh, to have and uh, work out what he might be saying to us uh, and not second guess him and not assume that we're right and what we have in front of us is wrong. So let's ask ourselves the question, why might Mark have finished his story in such an unusual way? What lessons would God be wanting us to learn? So, first thing to notice, Mark actually takes up chapter 16 uh, the night before. It doesn't read quite that way for us, uh, whose days begin in the morning. Uh, For the Jews, the Sabbath is finished uh, on Saturday evening at sunset. So verse 1 begins on Saturday evening, when the Sabbath was over. Uh, And the women who've been following the action, the women who were there watching at the cross, the women who were watching where the... the, uh, the body was placed. Uh, first thing, at sunset, the shops are open, so they head off to buy spices for Jesus' body. Then verse 2, cut to Sunday morning, they're up bright and early, and they arrive at the tomb for their first surprise. The stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. Uh, now, from what we can tell, the whole uh, arrangement was designed with this sort of trough that uh, the, the, a stone could sort of bottom out in. It was quite easy to get the stone in the in Uh, blocking the entrance but quite hard to get it out of the way once it was there but someone had moved it straight away the women stick their heads inside the tomb and uh, they find out uh, who is responsible as they entered the tomb they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side and they were alarmed that sort of rings of an eyewitness account doesn't it sitting there on the right side as uh, as, as the women are recounting to, to Mark or to whoever Mark heard from, uh, yeah, we went in and, and there he was. I can still picture it on the right-hand side. For some reason, Mark doesn't call him an angel, just a young man dressed in white, but he's obviously an angel because the women respond the way they do whenever anyone sees an angel. They're disturbed and astonished. He's got a message from God. Don't be alarmed, verse 6. You're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He's risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. He tells them not to be astonished, but then gives them the most astonishing news they've ever heard. He says not to be shocked, but there's no way they can not be shocked uh, with the message that he's got. They were already astonished with a stone rolled away, but... Uh, this news is even more astonishing. You're looking for Jesus. Yep, the Nazarene, not a different Jesus. That's the one, the one that was crucified. And you're in the right place because that's where the body was. But he's not here. He's been raised. He's been resurrected. He's beaten death. The tomb is empty. And the world will never be the same again. Because this is not the end. It's a beginning. Jesus is the catalyst. He's the enzyme. Uh, He's the first snowball that starts the avalanche. He's the captain of the football team who bursts through the big banner so that the rest of the team can follow behind him. He's the pioneer for a whole new humanity of people who've defeated death. That's the incredible news. But then the angel adds a command, what they're to do with that news. Verse 7, go, tell his disciples and Peter 
He's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. He was dead, but he's not anymore. And he's going to go home. He's going back to Galilee. And he wants the disciples to meet him there. And make sure you tell Peter. Because Peter's probably going to think he's not included. But make sure he gets the personal invitation. And you'll see him there just as he told you. Again and again he told you that he would die and then three days later would rise again. Well, now it's happened. So that's the message. The angel's done his job and now it's up to the women. Will they do their part? Well, hardly. Verse 8. Trembling and bewildered, they went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. The angel told them not to be alarmed, so instead they're trembling, bewildered and afraid. Well, it's technicality really, isn't it? It's the same thing. Uh, And so they run. But they're not running to tell the disciples, they're running in fear to get as far from the tomb as they can. Two commands that they've broken. They've been told not to be alarmed and they're afraid. They've been told to tell the disciples and they say nothing. So this is the last sentence of this greatest story ever told. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Now, I don't know about you, but it's, it's a bit of an underwhelming finish, isn't it? It's a bit of a Lord of the Rings part one type finish. That's the way I react. How can fear be the final emotion? What about joy and cheering? And where's the proof of Jesus' resurrection? No one's actually seen Jesus. It, it's all hearsay. And why didn't they say anyone to, uh, anything to anyone? This, this is a roadblock. It's not a way forward. It's an ending, not a beginning. What chance is there of anyone finding out about Jesus if this is all that happens? It's the news that should change everything, but it looks as though it's going to change nothing. It's all very unsatisfying for the reader. But I want to suggest that that's exactly what Mark wants us to think. He's even hinted at it, that he's only writing part one. Back at the start of his book, the very first verse, Mark chapter 1 verse 1 says, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, now he could just be saying, I'm starting, but he could also be saying, I'm just going to give you the beginning. Uh, The story will continue after I finish. And that's true, the story of Jesus continues far beyond his resurrection. It continues through the life of the church as Jesus reigns uh, in heaven and uh, looks after the church and looks after his world. Jesus' life, Jesus' story continues in the group of people who take on his name, Christian, Christ follower. The group of people whose lives are compellingly and powerfully changed and who keep telling the stories about Jesus. The story of Jesus continues in the lives of people today who walk with Jesus through his spirit. Jesus continues. Around the time of Jesus, there were plenty of other messianic uh, personalities who rose and they gathered people around them focused on their compelling personality. They even called themselves the Messiah. But one after one, they met the same end. They were normally murdered or crucified. 
And once the leader died, so did the movement. Everyone just returned back to their homes and waited for the next one to come along. You see, Jesus' resurrection is the beginning. It's a part one with a part two and a three to follow. And world history has proved that to be true. So I think Mark has designed this ending to unsettle us, to force us to ask these sorts of questions, to, to have these sorts of reactions. And the two questions in particular we're going to think about, is the message of Jesus enough? Is the message of Jesus enough? And then secondly, is the method of Jesus enough? The method of leaving it up to people like the women and you and me. Is the method enough? Well, firstly, is the message of Jesus enough? One thing I think that's unsatisfying is there's no actual proof. There are no eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection, just the word of this strange young man. Now, proof's what we'd all like to be able to give people, isn't it? Believe in Jesus, see, here's the proof. But that's confusing, I think, scientific proof with legal burden of proof. Uh, there are two sorts of proof there. Scientific proof is something that's is being able to repeat something, observe it and repeat it. Uh, and the way to prove someone rose from the dead scientifically is to repeat it uh, and so, to convince someone. But that's kind of difficult with a miracle, isn't it? Which, by definition, is something that happens outside of normal repeatable rules. And so what we need instead is a different kind of proof. We need something like a legal burden of proof. For example, two guys are arguing in court over a car accident whose fault it was. Now, the judge doesn't ask for scientific proof. He doesn't say, let's go out, let's reenact, reconstruct the whole accident. You get in your car, we'll make sure the road's just as slippery as it was before and the sun's at the same place in the sky and you'll be in your car and we'll, we'll just replay it and work out who's at fault. He doesn't do that. Now he looks for a legal proof. He listens to the two eyewitnesses. He compares their stories. He asks himself, what's the most reasonable uh, story that, that uh, here? What's the most reasonable story? And then he makes a judgment based on the legal evidence. And that's what it's like. It's that type of proof we're after when we're looking at Mark's message. Listen to the eyewitnesses. Whether those are Mark's first readers, about 60 AD, or whether it's today here in Sydney, we have to take someone's word for it, that Jesus is alive and he's true and he's real and he's good. We have to trust the message. It's about providing evidence rather than proof. Christian faith works that way. Uh, it's based on evidence. Uh, faith involves trusting something that you can't see, clinging to something that you're confident is there because you've checked it out, something you have good evidence for, but it's short of proof. Most things are. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying you, you leave your brain behind, that Christian faith is, is, is a brainless faith, that you have to suspend all logic and reasoning. Uh, there are valid reasons to trust the evidence. Uh, but it's got to be a legal type of evidence rather than a scientific evidence. At some point you need to trust the message. The message 
delivered by messengers. And so I guess you're trusting the messengers. But more importantly than trusting the messengers, you need to trust the one the message is about. As you hear about Jesus, does what you hear about Jesus ring true? Is he the sort of person you are willing to trust your life to, trust your eternity to? When we start to wonder, is the message of Jesus enough, we need to remember it was enough for the apostles. Their lives were transformed by that message. They gave up everything for it. They gave up their lives for it. They met the risen Jesus and then they told others. And the message changed their lives and the ones they told and the ones they told. That simple message has changed my life. It's changed the lives of many of you. The message of Jesus is still enough. The gospel changes hearts. The gospel, uh, the power that raised Jesus from the dead transforms guilty consciences into free, joyful ones. It transforms slaves to sin and temptation into people who've been set free to live the life they were made for. That simple message has power that transforms broken marriages, that transforms bitterness and unforgiveness into peace and wholeness. That simple message turns lives upside down, replaces hopelessness with hope, blindness with sight, guilt with freedom. There's evidence in the lives of people who've heard this message. Uh, there's evidence that you can rely on when you're looking for whether Jesus rose from the dead. The message is simple but powerful. Uh, it's still enough to change the world. So trust it. Trust it as you live it. Trust it as you speak it. Well, that brings us to a second question we can ask about Mark's ending. Uh, is that method enough? It seems very risky to leave the future of salvation in the hands of people too scared to say anything to anyone. Uh, it's not a very good strategy when uh, you know, the, the, the football game's coming down to the wire that you take off your best players and you put on your weakest players. You know, that's when everyone starts to get nervous when the coach does that. It's great when a coach does it, but all the, you know, the, the supporters are going, that's not the way to win the game. Looks like that's what Jesus has done here. Just imagine you were the first hearers of Mark's Gospel. Somewhere around 60 AD, you're meeting in secret. The Roman centurions are marching past outside. You're fearing being thrown to the lions and you're hearing this story of Jesus. And perhaps you ask yourself those same questions. But if the women were too scared to say anything to anyone, what happened? What happened to the message? But then they look at one another and the light gradually dawns and they say, hang on a minute, we're here today. That must have meant that the message did get out. Those women must have moved beyond their fear. They must have told someone who told someone else. And that's why we're here today. they manage to get over their fear, then I guess I can get over my fear as well. It's the same thing for us, isn't it? The message has spread so far 
through so many people getting over their fear that it's even made it to Ashfield, literally on the other side of the world. So who told you about Jesus? If you are a Christian, someone has told you, almost certainly. Was it a parent, friend, a neighbour, a workmate? Someone swallowed their fear enough to tell you the good news about Jesus. Thank God for them. Who will you be that person for? Well, perhaps Jesus' method is not such a bad idea after all. It certainly seems risky, but that's the way God has chosen to do things all the way through the Bible, to choose weak, frail, risky people like us. We are Jesus' body. We are his means of working in the world. We speak for him. We speak about him. We speak on his behalf. In the name of Jesus, we comfort and support and preach and encourage and rebuke the world for him. Jesus' method for reaching the world is us. And it is enough, as much as it seems like uh, a questionable strategy. Mark finishes his story the way he does because it's only part one. It's the beginning of the good news of Jesus. You see, we are part two. Where will the story end? It's up to us to write the ending. It's up to us to turn this great omission into the great commission so that this news that has changed everything, that Jesus has changed everything, really will change everything. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that increasingly we will be people who trust the power of the message that Jesus has risen from the dead, that we will trust it and live it and speak it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.